What a great day. I'm so glad to be here. Randy reminding us that people all across the world are taking communion, and we as Christians join in. That's wonderful. And then, I don't know how you felt about Jesus revealed in me. Bill, it's a powerful experience to know that you've gone through these archives of old hymns that are someplace in some dusty library and have brought them back to life and the beautiful language that you've put to music. I felt, I thought, this is a special moment to sing this song. Thank you for leading us in worship. And the announcements, ah, the children. I noticed the grandparents and the parents, this joy on their face with their little ones and Christmas and children and Christmas tree downstairs. And if I weren't up in the air at 35,000 feet, I would be down below in the basement with you this evening. But I will be here for next week's agape lunch. We've, this is a great tradition in churches. It goes back at least 200 years. Of, we call it potluck. And those who've experienced know how wonderful this tradition is. So if you've not experienced potluck, come and we will convince you that this is something worth doing, <laughs> a tradition worth keeping. Last night, I had the absolute pleasure of being guest in the home of Lou and Melissa. A delicious homemade meal topped with a savory pumpkin pie, crowned with a dollop of whipped cream. But the ambiance was even better, aided with the notable absence of a television. <laughs> a house filled with family memorabilia, a lovely Christmas tree, and books, and books, and books, and a 13-year-old friendly cat named Stella, all perfect for meaningful table conversation. To be in somebody's home is an act of grace and hospitality so rare and so essential for a healthy life and for a healthy church. We discussed, as we did last week, Stephanie and Richard's the absolute importance of each person in this congregation and the beautiful foundation that God has built here using masterfully the refounding pastor, Matt Soper. And so we're beginning a new a search process for a new minister when a foundation this fresh and a refounding pastor this effective. It's essential that we move carefully, that we listen carefully to the leading of the Spirit, which is why we're emphasizing prayer. And Rhonda is leading us there, leading us by turning our, high, our eyes and our hearts toward Jesus. This past few weeks, I've been living in the world that's envisioned in John's gospel. Nicodemus and the story of the women, woman at the well in particular. And so this morning, 
I propose to return from this world I've been living in, specifically in John chapter 4, with something of a missionary report about my initial findings from the land of Samaria and the town of Sychar and the well that is just outside the town. But before I present my missionary report, I would like for you to listen to the story itself. And as you listen, listen to the voices of Jesus and the voice of the woman, the voice of the disciples and the narrator as it's found in John chapter 4, verses 4 through 29. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee going through Samaria, and he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down by the well, while the disciples went into the city to buy food. Now, it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman replied, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Now, the Jews don't share things in common with the Samarians. Jesus, if you knew who it is that it's saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? Jesus, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. Well then. Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped in this mountain, but you say that people must worship in Jerusalem. Jesus, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The hour is coming, and it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, when the Messiah comes... He'll proclaim all these things to us. I am the Messiah. And just then, the disciples returned, astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But nobody said anything. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city, and she said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Can he be the Messiah? Meanwhile, the disciples urged him to eat. Rabbi, take something. Jesus, I have food to eat 
that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, did somebody give him something to eat? Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, look around you. The fields are white for harvesting. And so many, many Samaritans from that city believed Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. I considered this morning bringing an old-fashioned slideshow. Do you remember? A PowerPoint of my trip to the world that's envisioned in this narrative. A series of slides, for example, of first impressions upon entering this world. Slides, for example, of the woman's neighborhood, characters that live on her street, the people who live next door. The story of the Samaritan woman, of course, is just one house down from Nicodemus. In John's world, the Samaritan woman lives next door to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is in chapter 3. The, the Samaritan woman lives in chapter 4. And when you look at these two neighbors, they have some things in common that capture your attention. In both stories, there's water. In both stories, there's the Spirit. Jesus has a conversation in both stories with a single person out in the middle of nowhere. Chapter 3, Nicodemus. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. They're practically next-door neighbors. I just wanted you to notice their proximity and that they live in very different homes. Nicodemus is a Pharisee with a respected heritage. The Samaritan woman, how do you describe five marriages? Well, she's had a difficult past. Nicodemus tells us that he's seen signs and he knows that Jesus is from God. When the Samaritan woman meets Jesus, she's meeting a perfect stranger. Nicodemus, he takes the initiative to find Jesus under the cover of night. The Samaritan woman is approached by Jesus under the bright sun of high noon. Nicodemus is orthodox religion. The Samaritan woman despised heresy. Nicodemus has an impeccable academic pedigree. She is a Samaritan outcast. He is Nicodemus. That's his name. She is an unnamed Samaritan woman. In other words, the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus are moving in opposite directions, which makes the ending of their stories so surprising. In his story at the end of John 3, Nicodemus is very visible at the outset. He comes asking questions, he's making observations, he's expressing his opinions, he's looking for conversation. But by the story's end, Nicodemus has disappeared. He's vanished. He faded into the shadows of the night. Look for Nicodemus at the end of chapter 3. He's not there. You won't find him. He's left. He's gone. He slipped away. But watch the Samaritan woman at the end of her story. She leaves her water jar. She walks into town. She strikes up a conversation with the townsfolk. She's very visible. She's very verbal. She's a witness for Jesus. Very different endings, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And I report, I report this to you only because the neighborhood and my own ex expectations, it was such a surprise to me. I didn't expect it. 
That would be my first series of slides. The neighborhood, the contrasts, and the surprising ending. And then I was going to bring a second series of slides about the well. A slide of the well by itself. And then the woman at the well. And then Jesus at the well. And then a picture of Jesus and the woman at the well in conversation. Once outside this world, and I got into the world of John, I discovered another surprise. I had brought along a pair of Jewish glasses. I was going to, they were going to help me see from a Jewish point of view. You get my drift. I didn't wear my glasses long. I discovered that I didn't even need my glasses. All I needed when I got inside John's world was my memory of people at the well. What got me started was hearing Jesus say to the woman at the well, give me a drink, which reminded me of the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Do you remember that story? Abraham sends his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. The servant soon finds himself at a well where he prays, O God of heaven, the servant prays, may it happen that when I approach a maiden and request, give me a drink, that that person who replies, yes, my Lord, and may I give drink to your camels as well, may this person be the one you have appointed to be Isaac's wife. And no sooner do the words fall from his lips that he's standing before a young Rebecca, and the servant says, give me a drink. And she replies, yes, my Lord, and may I give drink to your camels as well. Gives you goosebumps. Isaac and Rebecca at the well. Remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? They meet at the well. Jacob strolls up to the mouth of the well, rolls away the boulder, covering up the opening to the well, kisses his future wife, Jacob and Rachel at the well. Of course, you probably thought of that already, knowing, of course, that this is Jacob's well here in John 4. And now our minds are off and running. Do you remember how Moses met Zipporah at the well? It's like an Old Testament highlight reel starting, starring the, the patriarchs and Moses. Woman at the well. Man approaches saying, give me a drink. What do you expect? It's a marriage proposal. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and Rachel. Moses and Zipporah. And now Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman and says, give me a drink. Yeah. What are you suggesting here? Are we supposed to take this literally? Nicodemus would have. Born again. You mean I got to enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? Disciples would have taken it literally. Master, take some food. I have food of which you don't know. Who brought him bread? Marriage proposal. It's probably easier for us to hear this from Paul. He says, the church, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is looking for a church. He comes looking for people who will believe and follow and be his witnesses. And what's so astonishing is that is precisely what the woman does. She comes to the townsfolk and she says, come see a man who has told me everything I've done. A witness. 
an evangelist for Christ. And then the third series of slides show me, I'm kind of embarrassed, trying to enter into the world envisioned in John. I'm standing there, ready to check my two large, light brown suitcases. I'm trying to carry my baggage into the text with me. But when I try, security wands my baggage and they find a problem. When they look further, they discover that the problem with my baggage is my assumption with this phrase, married five times. I've assumed that the woman is an immoral woman, married five times. Married and divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. And now she's shacking up with a guy, an immoral woman, a sinner. That's what I think. Of course, that's what we always think going in. Neighbor lady tells you, I've been married five times. <laughs> and then and the man I'm living with is not my husband. What do you think? You think, uh-oh, <laughs> red flag, trouble. Stay away. Or your friend at work, she confides in you. She says, my daughter, my daughter's been married five times, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. What do you say? You say, oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry for what? Sorry that your friend has such a daughter. That's what I assumed when I tried to get through customs. I assumed that she had probably cheated on the first husband. And then she, you know, remarried and traded up been married to a guy making 40000 then she found a guy making 80000 Or her husband was lazy, and she found herself a real go-getter. That's what I'm assuming. I argued with customs. Customs said, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. I said, he should have. Customs said, John doesn't pursue it. I said, I would have. They let me in anyway, tag my bags made me kind of mad, having to check my assumptions before I got into John's world. But once I got inside, once I got inside this world, I could hear the echoes and illusions of conversations from other stories in Scripture. For example, Jesus talking about a woman who was married to a man who dies, and she marries a brother who dies, and she marries the next brother, and so on, until there's seven brothers and seven husbands, and seven funerals. That's the story circulating in this world. In this world, both Samaritans and Jews live with the social security system that says when a woman is widowed, the next of kin has responsibility to marry her. Huh? That's the story of Ruth. That's the story of Naomi. That's the story of Tamar. And that may be our story as well. Maybe this woman isn't immoral. Maybe this woman has just had one tragedy after another and now she's forced to live with a man who doesn't have the common decency to marry her. What about the law? Oh, the law. It works in favor of Nicodemus. Yeah, Nicodemus, he lives off the law. But the law isn't helping this woman. In this world, Jesus does not pursue and John does not explore the woman's background. The spotlight, for the moment, is on the woman 
who perceives that Jesus is a prophet. And twice she tells the townsfolk, this man has told me everything I've ever done. Oh, a missionary report like this has its limits. There's some things that a preacher just can't report, even with a PowerPoint. There's some things you have to experience for yourself, to see for yourself, to hear with your own ears, and to see with your own eyes. And though I hesitate to bring you into Samaria, the tensions are running high. It would be like flying into Gaza or Israel today. It's not the place you'd send the youth group on a summer mission trip. But we fly into Samaria, the land of tensions. And by the time we get through security, we aren't standing on some sandy berm, a safe distance away, under a white canopy, shading us from the sun, peering through binoculars off in the distance. No, we've flown into Samaria, and we've driven out to Sychar, and now we're walking out to the well where we see two people in conversation. It's Jesus, and it's the Samaritan woman. And once we get within earshot, we can hear the woman. She's talking. I want you to look at her face. She's looking at Jesus, but look at her face. Oh, you say, she's serious. Oh, she is serious, and you would be too. She's not dodging Jesus' personal comments, just the opposite. Jesus has revealed something to her that only a prophet could know. And if, as she says, he is a prophet, why, she has the opportunity to ask the one question that burns hottest, that troubles her most, the one question closest to her heart, the hottest topic, the greatest controversy, the issue that's on everybody's mind. And Jesus says, the hour is coming when our worship will not be bound by place and people, not in this mountain, not in this city, not in this country, not in this building. We worship God in spirit and truth, pneuma and aletheia. That word, listen to it, aletheia, truth. It has a certain tone, a resonance. Listen to the word in the Gospel of John. Truth in John's gospel. The law came through Moses, but grace and aletheia, truth, were realized through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1. Put away your duct tape and rope. You can't take this language prisoner. Listen to the language's tone and how it performs in John's gospel. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, aletheia, and the life. Chapter 14. You can't kidnap the truth. The truth will set you free. Truth in John's gospel isn't abstract, it's a real live person. Truth in John's gospel isn't just intellectual, it's personal. The truth isn't just mental in John's gospel, it's personified in Jesus. It's embodied in a human being, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. Aletheia is always connected to Jesus Christ in John's world which is why at the end of John's gospel, Pilate's rhetorical question is so ironic. Pilate, standing before Jesus, says, what is truth? <laughs> what is truth? He was looking at truth. 
Truth is clear and it's objective, of course. But I can say with perfect clarity that in John's world, truth has everything to do with Jesus. It's personal. But now the disciples are returning to the well. In the foreground, the disciples, absent for this entire dialogue, now burst upon the scene. The smell of travel on their clothes, the odor of the market, the aroma of bread. The arriving disciples, they break the conversation, they end the discussion, they measure the woman, and they think about food. But the woman is now moving away. She leaves her water jar, and she's walking into the background. Look at her. Look at her. She has such purpose when she turns, such confidence in her walk, such determination in her stride. She's moving off into the background. And the disciples, the disciples, unaware, completely unaware of all that has just happened, they move in and they take over. They force the conversation to start all over again. Bread, is it literal? No, it's not, and so on. And now the woman, she's out of sight, back in Sychar. She's telling the townsfolk that Jesus might be the Messiah. You can't see her now, but she's convinced some, and others are coming out to see for themselves. They're moving in for the final chorus. This scene is so ironic. The Samaritan woman leaves her literal water jar to speak of the living water. At the very moment, the disciples begin to talk about literal bread. Oh, so ironic. It's ironic that the woman is off preaching while the men busy themselves with potluck. That's so ironic. It's ironic that she evangelizes while the disciples are being taught that the fields are white unto harvest. But the bigger irony is that for 2,000 years, we've not seen the woman as Jesus sees her. We dismissed her as a loose woman. We called her an airhead. She changes the subject when the, top, when the conversation heats up. We said, look at that. She forgot her water jar. But the biggest irony is that Jesus, before our own eyes, has treated the Samaritan woman as a full human being, as a serious conversation partner, as a successful evangelist, as a person who is capable of seeing the true identity of Jesus and acting more appropriately than anybody else in the neighborhood. So what drives this woman? Listen to her. She says, Jesus knows everything about me. Might he be the Messiah? It's exactly what had gotten to Nathaniel earlier in the gospel when he says, how do you know me? As the disciples are maneuvering into position, we now find ourselves standing before Jesus. He knows us too. He knows our worst fears. He knows our anxieties, our saddest moments, our greatest hopes. And he looks us in the eye and he says, you're looking for a church, aren't you? 
a community that will help you live, help you die, people to provide with you meaning, people to love for your children, for your grandchildren, the church loyal to your past that will help you follow me today. Is that what you thirst for? We say, that's exactly what we want. And Jesus said, so you've been thinking that Nicodemus might be your first choice. Do you want his influence? He says, you think Pilate would be quite a catch? You want somebody with inside power? You hoping for somebody with deep pockets to finance the programs, the building? You think that's what you need? Is that what you want? Oh, he is a prophet. We drop our heads. We say, oh, that's kind of where our mind sometimes goes. He caught us. He doesn't need to say anything more. Jesus has selected the least likely of all people for his church, a Samaritan. In the worst of circumstances, a woman with a torturous past with so many other attractive options nearby. And Jesus takes the initiative with us as well. And he encourages us and he walks with us and he points to Sychar to Sychar, the first member of the church in Samaria, the bride of Christ, the Samaritan woman, Jesus witness to the world whom we can no longer see because she has effectively taken our eyes off of her and she's cast them back on Jesus. And so this morning, I'm reminded of the great divisions that are in our world that I've already mentioned, the battles between people, the vicious hatred that's going on in our nation and our world today. So much of it has its roots in the same kind of fears that divided the Jews, the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus is one who crosses boundaries. He tears down walls. He sets aside old categories and he looks for new possibilities and he encourages us to learn from him, to make for ways of peace, and to unite, and to stop acting like we've been programmed to act, which has been to fight and divide. The Samaritan woman, she sent the townsfolk out to see Jesus for themselves, and they'd spend two days with him, learning his ways, learning to follow him. And so as she was on that day, the Samaritan woman is for us today, our preacher, who sends us to Jesus to stay with him a few days, to learn his ways, to learn the ways of the one who taught us to engage people like the Samaritan woman, to care for the marginalized, to give to those least likely to return the favor. And that is when we meet Jesus at the well. That's when we become the bride of Christ who is the savior of the world, that is when we are finally able to share Jesus with our community. Thank you this morning for listening and taking to heart this message that comes from the experience of the last few weeks living in the world that John envisions.